Today's massacre in Texas hitting a raw nerve for many people here at home in Buffalo as we continue to grieve after the mass shooting at Tops on Jefferson Avenue that happened to us just 10 days ago. Natalie Fami went to Jefferson Avenue tonight. Natalie, how are people taking the news now about this latest mass shooting. Hannah, this news is absolutely heartbreaking for everyone I spoke with earlier today. Many tell me they're not shocked to hear about another mass shooting and don't expect them to end anytime soon. Others tell me it's hard not to live in fear right now. I'm shaking right now. That's how nervous I am. Just 10 days after 10 people were killed at this tops in Buffalo, yet another mass shooting happened. This time in an elementary school in Texas, where children and teachers were massacred. Where are we safe at? We're not safe at the grocery store. We're not safe at the schools. Just by living, it's just too scary just to walk out your door and you worry, oh, am I even going to make it back home in one piece? These are kids. They have their whole life ahead of them. They even live to see eighth grade, and y'all just killing them all? Killing them all? Another one will happen, another one will happen until, you know, we get the politicians, we get the community, we get, you know, everyone together to understand why are these 18-year-olds and just not even 18-year-olds, anybody allowed to just come and mess up a community. Some say this is what hate winning looks like. These are the days in which we're living in, and it's, it's a shame, but it's, it's the fact, and this is the results. Of, of evil. I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophets of Rage. And this is Newsbeat. Hey, everybody. This is Manny Faces, audio editor, producer, and host of the award-winning Newsbeat podcast. Now, the Newsbeat family and I are truly at a loss for words regarding the senseless mass shootings in Buffalo, New York and Uvalde, Texas. In fact, I was away on business in Round Rock, Texas, just outside of Austin, when I got word of the Robb Elementary School shooting. I, I was away from home and I just wanted to be back home hugging my kids. That was hard. So now, while details are still emerging about the how and why an 18-year-old would slaughter 19 children and two teachers after shooting his own grandmother in the face, there's no question as to the motive of the Buffalo gunman, also an 18-year-old. He wanted to kill black people and specifically targeted that area of Buffalo, the east side, and that specific top supermarket due to the high concentration of black folks in the area. Now, while that killer deserves all the blame, we shouldn't ignore the decades of racist policies such as redlining that have contributed to Buffalo being one of the most segregated cities in the country, stricken with depressing levels of poverty, lack of healthcare access, public housing problems, mass displacement, and aggressive policing, all of which helped create this guy's perfect killing field. The top supermarket where so many were murdered while simply shopping for food is actually testament to some of those sinister practices only constructed following fierce advocacy and now shuttered, returning the area to what's called a food desert, with an estimated 22,000 residents now without a local grocery store to feed their families. So while it was a racist white gunman who actually pulled the trigger, it remains America's systemic and persistent xenophobia, bigotry, and prejudice that continues to dig these innocent folks' graves, and not just in Buffalo, but across this whole country. My heart breaks even having to say these words. And we felt it was important to spread the word about some of these underreported truths. So we actually began crafting this mini episode before the Uvalde massacre. 
explaining Buffalo's history and its black residents' ongoing battle for equality, among much more, is Anna Blado, staff member and research associate at the Buffalo-based nonprofit Partnership for the Public Good. And as a reminder, please subscribe and rate and review us on your favorite podcast app to share the love and help spread the work. Also, consider subscribing to our free Substack newsletter at newsbeat.substack.com for new drops, bonus content, updates, and much more. Feel free to shoot us an email at usnewsbeat at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, if you want to know more about our entire operation, visit us at usnewsbeat.com. Once again, my name is Manny Faces. On behalf of all of us at Newsbeat, we thank you again for spending some time with us. This is Racism Kills, Segregation's Role in the Buffalo Massacre. Tonight, authorities say the alleged shooter planned it all. It started around 2.30 Saturday afternoon in the parking lot of this Topps-friendly market store in a predominantly black neighborhood in Buffalo. The alleged shooter wearing full body armor and tactical... Officials say the alleged gunman in Buffalo's mass shooting chose his target because of the high percentage of black people in that particular area, which raises a question. How did that neighborhood become so segregated in the first place? A University of Michigan analysis found that the Buffalo-Niagara Falls metro area overall is the sixth most segregated in the whole U.S. And another study by the University of Buffalo concluded last year that the economic conditions for black people in that city had not improved in three decades. Just to kind of give a background on Buffalo for folks who may not be familiar, Buffalo is a medium-sized city. It's in western New York, pretty far away from New York City. It's currently the second largest city in New York. And just to give a background and perspective of how this segregation uh, took place in the context of Buffalo's history, it used to be the eighth largest city in the United States in 1900. And it was the sixth busiest water port in the world due to its history of industry and manufacturing and its location on Lake Erie and the Erie Canal. So a lot of shippers used Buffalo as a port to be able to get their boats to the Atlantic Ocean. So its population peaked in 1950 at about 580,000 but it experienced a very stark population decline from 1950 to 2000. During the same period of time, poverty climbed from 15% to nearly 27%, and the black population in Buffalo increased 433% from 1940 to 1970. And Buffalo's population has recently begun to stabilize for the first time since 1950, Buffalo residents who have been here for decades would mostly agree that the city has experienced growth over the past 10 to 15 years, but while some areas have experienced a bit of a resurgence, the same cannot be said for the whole city. Now that is especially true when it comes to the number of families currently living in poverty here. Poverty is persistent with 28% of the city living under the poverty level. The region itself is not unusually poor, but it's unusually unequal in terms of geography and race. The overall poverty rate in Erie County is 13% compared to the city's 28%. And those living in poverty who make less than $10,000 per year are more concentrated in the city. So that's considered to be deep poverty is concentrated in the city of Buffalo and particularly on the east side. Black Buffalo residents are significantly more likely to be in poverty than white residents. To look at the scope of the east side in particular, 
Geographically, the dividing line in Buffalo continues to be Main Street. Census tracts generally considered to be part of the east side of Buffalo. 64% of residents identify as black alone, compared to 18% of residents who identify as white alone. So it's a very, very big gap and a very high concentration of people of color and black residents specifically. And Buffalo, I mean, across the country, poverty and race go hand in hand. And it, this is true in Buffalo with people of color, including Buffalo's black residents, tending to be poorer. Since Buffalo's segregation is persistent, segregated neighborhoods often tend to have high poverty levels. On the east side of Buffalo, we see a lack of investment in general, but a lack of investment when it comes to grocery stores and fresh food options. The tops on the east side was advocated for and did not get constructed until 2003, and it took years of local community advocates along the Jefferson Avenue corridor, which is located on the east side, of course, in the Maston district, to and, and community residents to advocate for a fresh food supermarket, a major fresh food supermarket to be in that community. Tonight in this neighborhood still grieving, makeshift food pantries popping up for residents in desperate need of fresh food. It's really, really important. People have to come to com come together to help one another. Tops, the only big grocery store for miles, remains a closed crime scene. What was an oasis in a food desert. I stumbled and got knocked to the floor and you know, just was crawling. Manager of Fragrance Harris Stanfield was near the front when the gunman blasted in and says Tops was more than a grocery store, a meeting place, a community hub. This is our only major chain grocery store in the area, so we need this. When we look at today, the landscape of major grocers in the city of Buffalo, there's about 18 of those within the borders of just the city of Buffalo. Four of those 18 are located east of Main Street. Only three of those four have service areas, which we define and using the general designation of what, what's considered a food desert of one mile around that location. So not only was one of the only major grocers targeted in this area with a high concentration of black folks living there, but it is one of the only food options in terms of a major grocer with a large amount of amenities and fresh food options. And the, the kind of the last point that really kind of hits home when it comes to how terrible the loss of that location is, not only that, but the stark reality of why that location was targeted. When you look at that location of the tops on Jefferson, 22,000 folks live closer to the tops on Jefferson than any other of those 18 grocery stores, meaning there is a huge gap of availability and access to a grocery store. The symbolism of that location as a place that folks advocated for was really significant in community reflections of this event and really significant in the way folks looked at this event as even more traumatic, if that even is possible, because it was a, a space that was for the community, a space that was advocated for by community members. And folks remember 
especially folks living in that area or folks in Buffalo who are over the age of 30, remember not having that location there. They remember what was there before. The process of segregation is driven by the way in which we build cities. Within the urban areas, ever since the rise of home ownership in the United States, there have been a sorting and sifting process to separate higher income whites from lower income blacks. Back in 1940, Buffalo was one of the most integrated cities in the United States. But as home ownership increased, and as we saw this land valuation system occur, blacks were concentrated in places on the east side where the most undesirable residential lands in the city existed. So the segregation in Buffalo, and you can see this across the country, but I break it up into three different overarching categories. One is redlining, real estate, and investment. The other is public housing and federal and state and local policy around public housing. And the third is the effects of suburbanization, urban renewal, and displacement. And all three of those go hand in hand and overlap in a lot of different ways, but they contribute to this persistent segregation in different ways as well. And what we have seen is over time, policies that were once legal and enforced by law have transitioned into the general way that different institutions, government, banks, businesses, etc., treat and handle their service areas and investment and just a wide range of factors that relate to the segregation that we see today. Historically, the Great Migration brought a lot of black folks from the southern states into northern cities where there were manufacturing jobs. The Great Migration occurred in the decades after the Civil War and witnessed the movement of hundreds of thousands of African Americans from out of the South to communities in the North and West. Historians generally talk about the Great Migration in two waves, one from 1910 to 1940, and one that lasts roughly from 1940 to 1970, when the Great Migration is said to have ended. Historians estimate that between 1910 and 1940, as many as 1.5 million African Americans migrated from the South to Northern cities. As a result of that, there was tension between the existing white communities up there, particularly among immigrant communities and the newly arrived black folks. So not long after the Great Migration began, practices to restrict residency through restrictive covenants were established. And restrictive covenants essentially restricted the ability of certain folks by race or other factors from buying properties. Redlining specifically is one of those major contributions to segregation. And it's one of those visual ways where you can see how that specific policy has resulted in persistent segregation today and, and, and the divide of people of color, black populations from white populations in, in cities. Buffalo's redlining maps closely align with the highest concentrations of black populations in Buffalo to this day. And they match very, very closely with Buffalo's east side. Tonight, we're taking an in-depth look at a practice known 
as redlining right here in Buffalo. Now, historically, Buffalo has been one of the most 10 segregated cities in this country. But this segregation is due to more than just individual choices or people wanting to live near those who look alike. The roots go back more than 80 years when the development of the city was quite literally mapped out and has left today's generation now working to bridge the divide. These places, they kill people because they cause unnecessary disease, death, and dying. And this resulted in a disinvestment spiral that contributed to a lot of different things from those redlining maps all the way to today. A 1975 report on root causes of blight in Buffalo found that only 26% of mortgages in Erie County, where Buffalo is located, were given in the city of Buffalo. And most majority black districts in Buffalo were redlined by most banks. In 2015, Evans Bank, which is a bank that's located in Buffalo, but throughout Western New York, was charged with discriminatory lending practices, including the creation of a map defining their trade area, which excluded Buffalo's east side. And a 2021 report from New York State's Department of Financial Services, and this report really kind of hit home when it came to how banks are acting and treating this area specifically, noted that there's a significant lack of lending to minority-majority neighborhoods and home buyers of color decades after these practices were banned under federal law. And the report went as far to say that banks have little or no engagement with residents of color, show no real effort to serve neighborhoods of color within the Buffalo area, and they also put in little or no effort on how to track how well lenders are serving the community. That is really the, the, one of the root causes of persistent poverty is access to housing and access to affordable quality, not only homes, but rental units. And you see this in, in statistics to this day. Health disparities are really stark in segregated communities partially because of lack of health care due to job access and the type of jobs that, that folks might work who live in those communities, and partially because of infrastructure, healthcare infrastructure. The other reason that health disparities exist are related to housing and related directly to urban renewal. Life expectancy is higher west of Main Street life expectancy of white residents five years higher than that of black residents. There's a lack of reliable transportation that contributes to residents of color being able to go to the doctor or seek treatment. And this lack of reliable transportation has to do with inconsistent work schedules, again, with the jobs that a lot of folks have to work who live in, in those communities. Reduced access to healthcare facilities in those segregated communities. For residents of the east side, hospital admissions are three times higher than that of higher income residents. We had found that Buffalo's black residents are nearly six times more likely to live in a community with more restricted food access. Lower concentration and a presence of healthy food options within a one mile radius of, of where you live. 
Criminal justice is such an important component of this, and it cannot go underlooked in this overall conversation. Law enforcement tends to be much more intensive and invasive in racially segregated city neighborhoods. It often makes residents feel like police are more of an occupying force rather than public safety allies. Historically, the war on drugs amplified this in those communities, resulting in a higher percentage of black folks not only being arrested historically, but being incarcerated historically. I always like to comment that my area of expertise is is kind of research and amplification of black voices and voices of folks who live in, in those communities. And as a white person living in Buffalo, I feel as though my job is is to amplify those voices as much as possible. That being said, this, of course, was traumatic for black folks in Buffalo. And it added a whole layer of a possibility that maybe some folks didn't even think was possible. Folks already have been targeted based on race. Folks already knew that their communities didn't experience the lack of, or the the amount of development and investment that other communities did. And and it, it was pretty visible, the composition, the racial composition of the neighborhoods that did experience that level of investment and the ones that didn't. The reality is, that government and corporate interests have systemically harmed Buffalo's black community for over a century. And that's evidential. You can see that in history. You can see that in previous policies. You can see that in impacts. So that's really, really rooted in evidence. We really need to take a serious look at where we're spending money as a country, but also as a city. In the wake of this tragedy, we must We really have to focus on amplifying members of this community. We have to amplify black voices, amplify black-led organizations, and really amplify neighborhood-level solutions, reallocating money into community-level organizations that can fill in what the police tend to be used for now, mental health response, and organizations that really are working to address the root cause of poverty and give folks a voice that generally feel as though they don't have one. We go now to Buffalo, New York, where we're joined by India Walton, former Buffalo mayoral candidate, longtime community activist. We are at yet another moment of national reckoning, right? This is not an isolated incident. This is more than half a century of oppression, of systemic racism, and now is the time to renew the call for reparations. Um, I think we need bold, reparative action on the um, on the forefront of all of these conversations. Prayers and thoughts are not enough. Um, we have we live in communities that have been redlined. People who have been intentionally left out of our economic system. People who have been preyed on, extracted from, and if we're going to begin to heal as a country and and really beat back what is systemic racism that causes these extremist ideas and homegrown terrorists, um, our people have been terrorized for generations in this country. Our existence in this country comes from a place of terror. And if we're not having conversations about reparations, if we're not having conversations about actively undoing the harm that has been caused by redlining, by intentionally leaving black people out of economic and social upward mobility, then it's it's a non-starter for people like me who do this work, who care for our communities. Um, you know, we're, we're tired. I'm tired 
Um, this dude was allowed to go into our grocery store and shoot up a bunch of grannies and aunties, right? And children, an eight-year-old girl hid in a freezer, afraid for her life. And, you know, I'm, I'm tired of prayers. I don't want that. Um, we need resources. We need money. We need the accessibility and availability of our own things. So we have our own grocery stores um, and, and we need to be able to have the self-determination on autonomy to protect ourselves in our own community. I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophets of Rage. And this is Newsbeat. This is a Many Faces Media production. Many Faces! You sick for this one. Sick for